Well, good morning, everyone. My chance to say hello. If we haven't met or if you're joining us online, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the ministers here on staff. Thank you. And uh, today we are um, inside for a flannel graph uh, sermon. And uh, next, yes, woohoo, all right. Uh, Next week we'll be back in here again. And then remember that last week of Camp Church, we will be outside again and we will be having a cookout outside that you're going to want to bring your own sides to, but we will have the meat that will be safely and, you know, all the, all the safety stuff will be there. Um, and uh, so anyway, this is uh, our inside time. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time working uh, with kids, being a part of youth ministries and camps and volunteering, and then having my own children. I've become real familiar with... Uh, with cartoons, with kids' program, with TV shows. And you're probably familiar with a, a lot of these, a little washed out, with a lot of these different characters. But watching these, uh, these movies as an adult with a child that I am tasked with raising is a little bit of a different kind of experience. I'd seen, for instance, I remember vividly, I, I had seen Cinderella, I don't know how many times as a kid, but I knew the story very well. But sitting down and watching it with my adult eyes, having dealt with people in crisis and having taken counseling classes and all these kinds of different things, sitting with my sweet little Emery as I watch the psychological, the physical, the emotional abuse that is heaped upon this poor woman while she mourns the death of both of her parents. Like, that's the movie. And I just kept watching thinking, why am I letting her see these things? But if you think about it, that's pretty true of all of these. Like, most of these don't have parents. These are tragic stories. And if we move beyond just even these modern tales that we tell and look back at maybe one of the most ancient non-biblical, but ancient stories, Odysseus or Ulysses, that story begins with pain as well. Fairy tales that we tell in the middle of it often are very dark. For instance, you might know that The Little Mermaid didn't originate with Disney but was a fairy tale. And in that fairy tale, she doesn't get the prince. She does, however, get cursed and turn into sea foam. Happy Lee ever after. I mean, these stories often are, are full of, 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 of tragedy and woe. And these are the stories that we often tell our children. And I think for good reason. I think for good reason. I think they reflect life as it is. That life is very difficult. That life is rarely fair. That life often puts you in places that you don't want to be, and you are going to spend your entire movie suffering until at the end you get the glass slipper. Because that's what it is sometimes in life. Anyone willing to give a witness to that experience? And so we teach it young with stories like this. The thing that I have found strange about the way that we interact with children in church is we often try to strip that pain out of our stories. We don't tell the stories that are difficult. We don't tell the stories that hurt or make our heroes look bad. We tell stories that have been sanitized. The world doesn't do that, but we tend to do that. Our Bible doesn't do that, but we tend to do that. This morning, I want to enter into a story that is very difficult 
A story that is, that is full of pain, but a story that does because when we tell stories, we always inject God. Or, or maybe it's better to put God shows up in our stories. And when God shows up in our stories, all of the pain and all the suffering and all of the struggle, all of the, the, the pain of that adventure that we have been on finally has a moment to actually meet its happily ever after, to have its glass slipper, to have that moment because in God there is always There is always resurrection. And it is always bigger, more bountiful, more generous, and more beautiful than we can imagine. But it often begins with pain. So our story begins with Hagar. And I have to explain this image a little bit. Uh, (laughs) So of the hundreds of flannel graph people that we have, we have one person of color. (laughs) That is that person. So I tried to give uh, this guy a hairdo, and that was my best attempt. So I added a a purse so that we would understand this is Hagar. Um, So this is sort of like me rolling with the technical difficulties of the fact that apparently when we make flannel graphs, they all have to be white. So this is Hagar. And Hagar is Egyptian. And Hagar is a young slave. She's a slave to a man named Abraham and a woman named Sarah. She has been brought by Abraham into the family to be the head slave of Sarah. And we have to understand that slavery at this time is a social norm. Nobody questions it. Nobody asks about whether it's right or wrong. It just sort of is what it is, which is, of course, a lesson for us about the power of belonging to a culture that we rarely have the lens to criticize the things that are happening around us and even that we are participating in, which is why we should hold all of it so loosely because in four, five, maybe ten years, we will look back on ourselves and say, we have acted foolishly. So, Hagar's owners, Abraham and Sarah, had a special relationship with God In fact, before we meet Hagar, first we have an encounter with Abraham, and he is facing the night sky. God has brought him out into the night, and God has told him to look at the stars in the sky and to count them if he could. He can't. And he says, all of these stars are representative of all of the children that you will have. I am going to bless you, make a great nation out of you, and we are going to have a relationship of blessing where I will bless you and you will praise and bless me back. And because of the richness of the blessing I'm giving to you, it will flow out and you will have a blessed relationship with the entire world. Later on in Exodus, when God is first bringing his people to the Mount Sinai, he calls them the priests of the world. Like they are the ones who are going to initiate and bring all of the world into a new relationship with God via his special, special people. And this promise that God makes to to Abraham also has built into it a problem. That problem being that Abraham and his wife Sarah are too old to have children. You'll often find this in the Bible. You might find this even in your life, where God promises to do something that is literally impossible, like having a kid when you're 80, which also sounds awful. But setting that aside (laughs) for now, this is the story. And, And so this impossible thing God says, 
Abraham believes, and because he believes, God counts him as righteous, but he also believes that he knows how the world works, and it's just simply not going to happen that he and his wife are going to biologically bear a child. So they have to take matters into their own hands, which, if you've read your Bible enough, is always a no-no, always bad news bears. Nothing good comes of it. This is exactly what happens. Sarah comes to Abraham and says, I've got the solution. I have a slave. Her name is Hagar. You should marry her. Now put yourself in Hagar's shoes for a moment. Late teenage, early 20s maybe. Do you want to marry a 90-year-old man? Bear a child by him? She doesn't have a choice in this matter, but she does go through with it. She and Abraham are married... And you would think that this would put them in a good position. Hagar has now like moved up from sort of slave status to like married, at least a concubine within the house. And exactly what they hope happens does happen. She does conceive. She does bear in her womb now Abraham's heir. You can imagine the excitement she might feel. Not only have I moved from sort of slave status to at least concubine status, but now I'm also bearing the heir. So my position is, 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 is better. Things are going well. Things are going to look up. But in fact, here, the story took an even darker turn. And here, actually, I want to give you the text of Scripture this is the version that you have in your pews. This is one, NIV is one that's very familiar probably to many of you modern versions. And so both of these translations are, are pretty standard. Hagar saw that she conceived and she looked with contempt on her mistress or she began to despise her mistress. Now on the one hand, I, I don't want to uh, begrudge Hagar any despising or contempt. That seems like something that might naturally occur the problem is that is actually not the word in hebrew at all we've actually translated this in such a way as to make hagar a villain but the word that is presented here is literally to make something smaller so imagine if you will somebody who is in a position of of high honor they're very special. They get to tell you what to do. But suddenly, you have become like them in your position. What happens to that person in your eyes? They get smaller and smaller and smaller until she looks like Hagar. Until, in their minds, they are equal. And Sarah will not abide this. She goes to Abraham and she says, You determine between us. Who is in charge? And Abraham says to her, you are. She's your slave. Do with her what you will. And so she does. She treats her harshly. And this causes Hagar to run away. She runs into the wilderness, fleeing from the oppression she's experiencing. And she finds a small spring of water. And there she is able to rest. And as she is resting, this, the angel of the Lord comes to her and speaks to her and says to her, Sarah, or Hagar, slave of Sarah, from where are you coming and where are you going? And she says, I am fleeing my mistress. And God says something to her that is incredibly Important. He gives her this. 
the angel of the Lord says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for the multitude. You shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard. That word Ishmael is a name that means the Lord has heard. The Lord has heard your cry. I hope that you recognize what is being said in this text right here because it doesn't happen anywhere else in all of Scripture. God has delivered to Abraham a promise. I will make of you a great nation through your wife Sarah and the son that you will have. And now God has stepped in and given that same promise to Hagar. The one that his own people had abandoned, mistreated, and misused, God has now decided to deliver to her the promise that was previously exclusive for them. Imagine the grace and the relief. Imagine the thoughts that could have been racing through Hagar's mind. No longer is she dreaming of a future where she is being oppressed over and over and over and over again by Sarah, by Abraham, by the situation she has found herself in. But now she can dream of a day when her son will be king and she will be queen mother. That's a whole new future. That's a whole new glass slipper for this woman. She believes the Lord. Because she goes back to Abraham and to Sarah, and she does indeed bear a son. And she must have told Abraham some of the situation, what happened to her out in the wilderness, because they do name, Abraham names his son Ishmael. And it would seem again like things are sort of shaping up because clearly she was told, uh, told Abraham what God has done for her and that might ease up some of the pressure between her and Sarah. Except for this, a new problem shows up. God fulfills God's promises like God always says and like God always does. And no longer is Hagar the only one with a son. Now Sarah has bore a son. The true heir, the one through which the promise that God gave is going to flow. And here, here we want to, I want to read some of the text. What happens when we have a young baby from Isaac, named Isaac and we have a 13-year-old Ishmael? Well, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah says, that's hilarious. That's a funny story. Tell somebody a story. I know the story about this 100-year-old man and this 90-year-old woman, and they had a kid. And you're like, I'm sorry. What now? Tell me that again, because that sounds ridiculous and painful and tiring and what? And it's so funny. She says, can you imagine? Has anybody ever imagined that I would wean a baby for my 100-year-old husband? What are they going to do? They're going to laugh. They're going to laugh about it. It's, it's so ridiculous, so crazy. There's nothing you can do but just say, man, God is so good and so wild. So wild. He brings life to the oldest people in, this, in the book. What happens next? The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. And Isaac, of course, is a name, also means he laughed. So we've got to, they've, they've, used, they've used the word laughter not only to reference, Sarah's reference herself, but also named her son laughter. What happens? She saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she goes to Abraham and said, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. So let's put this in our minds for a moment. 
Abraham throws a great feast because his son Isaac, he laughs, is about to take his first meal. Sarah has called him laughter. She's called laughter upon herself. She said, God has blessed me with so much joy that all I can do is laugh and laugh and laugh. And she looks over and she sees Hagar and she sees Ishmael. And Ishmael is what? Laughing. He doesn't get to laugh. Laughter belongs to me. Laughter belongs to my house. Laughter belongs here. But my enemy is laughing too, and that I can't abide. How many of you have been in this spot before where you have disliked or been mad at somebody and you see them having a good time, maybe even a better time than you, and you say to yourself, oh, man, that burns me up. They should not be enjoying life right now. How many? Come on now, church, give me a witness because I've done that more than once. We've done that. We sense that bitterness. When you see somebody having something, but you don't like that person, it it, it can gall you. And you see that happening right here, this play on this word laughter that's being drawn up here. She cannot have him laughing. And so, get rid of them. Now, the next part makes me sort of ashamed of Abraham. Because it says that Abraham was very troubled by this situation. And they're alone. She's after him. He's troubled by the situation. But it says in the text that he's troubled by the situation because of his son. Nobody mentions Hagar. She is shoved to the edge and still left there. Abraham's concern is for his son. And I am just a little bit mad for Hagar. I'm just a little bit upset for her. I want some justice for her story. I want that glass slipper. I... She needs something to work out for her. You know, her story takes up two major sections of of two two major sections of chapters in Genesis. We almost never tell her story. We almost never tell these stories because these stories are uncomfortable. It makes Abraham and Sarah not look like ideal heroes, which is what the Bible intended. Your heroes are not ideal heroes; they're humans. As soon as you idealize and put somebody up on a pedestal, that's where we get cult of personalities. That's where we get mistakes. That's where we get people protecting people, making bad decisions, and hurting people. We see here that Abraham and Sarah are as human and vulnerable to mistakes as you and I. And I take some comfort with the fact that God is still moving and working with them. But I also notice that God has not forgotten Hagar Everyone else has forgotten Hagar, but God has not. Abraham doesn't defend her at all. He says, no, all right. The Lord, in fact, shows up and says to Abraham, listen to Sarah, which I have to explain. He says, listen to Sarah and go ahead and send her off because I will make a great nation of her. So Abraham takes her. And this is the part that sort of is a little strange as well. He gives them a skin of water and a loaf of bread and sends them off into the wilderness. And into the wilderness they go, but you can imagine that bread doesn't last long and neither does water. And so there comes a point where finally they are bereft of any resources. And so Hagar puts her son Ishmael in a bush a ways away from her and she sets in another bush so that she does not have to see her son die. 
and she cries out to God. She just laments. She weeps into the night. And again, the Lord shows up. And he speaks to her in graciousness. He says to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And the Lord opened up her eyes to see a spring, a a wadi, an oasis of the desert to which she was able to take the boy, and there they lived. And there we find that he grows up into a mighty warrior, a mighty bowman, gathers men around him, and this is the birth of a nation that you'll find out throughout Scripture where God fulfills his promise to Hagar, where she does indeed bear a great nation. She does indeed get her glass slipper. And from here, she drops off in the story, and we don't hear much more about it, and God continues on with Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and the story of God's people. God's people who are imperfect, God's people who make a lot of mistakes, God's people who God still works with, still loves, still is compassionate with, still continues to struggle and strive and pull the best out of us, but recognizing also at the same time that God's people have often had a hard time recognizing the margins, just like everyone else. Everyone else, everywhere you go, the easiest thing for us to do is to find and make enemies. And the hardest thing for us to do is to find and make friends. The hardest thing for us to do is to forgive. The hardest thing for us to do is to walk in unity, as Brad talked about. The hardest thing for us to do is to to see those people who somehow Abraham and Sarah did not even see her as a person. She was a tool by which they could achieve the fulfillment of their promise. And God, instead of cursing and destroying, God, instead of correcting and demanding, God, instead of doing all of the things that I would probably have done, God acquiesces. God brings himself down. And God works with Abraham and Sarah and continues to push them and grow them. And God works with Hagar, giving her and blessing her and raising her up and giving her a promise that he only ever gave to Abraham because God does not forget anyone. He has not forgotten his people, and he has not forgotten the people that we have forgotten, the people that we have left behind. Yet at the same point, I can't help but read this story and think that as we see how God interacts with generosity to kind of everyone in this story, no matter how good or bad they are in that story, reminds us of how we are to be as well. How should we be? Should we be like Abraham and Sarah? Certainly not. Should we be like Hagar? I hope not. Should we be like God? Absolutely. Should we be like God? Absolutely. Reaching out in generosity and hope and looking as God looks toward the margins, towards the loss, towards those edges so that we can reach and bless those where where it hurts the most. Let's stand. I'd like to pray and then we will end with this God in heaven we thank you as your people for the grace and for the mercy and for the love that you have bestowed upon us in Jesus Christ our Lord 
that we saw that in the Old Testament, we see that all throughout your hand, that you are good to your people even when we are not good to you or to others. Forgive us, Lord, where we have failed to be good to you and to be good to others. Let us instead walk in your way. Let us be the kind of people who recognize those who are hurting and go to them. Let us be like you, O Lord. Teach us to walk in your ways. Teach us to embrace your grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit and all of God's people said.